Hi, my name is Sidney Osborne, and I will be presenting today on St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. We have our usual disclaimer where some of the details maybe are as much from church data as from actual historical records, so if you have anything you want to throw at me because I might goof up some of the materials, there, there's a surcharge in advance. That's all I'm more humorous note, just to get us started. So basically, for some vital statistics for St. Ambrose, his real name is... Ambrose Aurelius. The Aurelian family is sort of his family name. I guess it's kind of like a... I guess maybe it's of the tradition where the given name was presented last and the and the family name was presented first. He comes from... The, let's see, I can't read from here. Okay. He comes from the region of Milan and he was a staunch opponent of Arianism, not unlike Polycarp. Born around 340 AD, died around 397 AD, about the fourth century. He was revered as a doctor of the early church because he was so good with his theology and liturgical writings, just all kinds of theological discourses, including discussing with, or with the likes of Oregon, Philo, even other more secular um, presenters, that he was basically kind of a jack-of-all-trades, and he was even actually a staunch musician, which I'll get into in a minute. But before he became the Bishop of Milan, he actually was the governor of a region called Liguria and Emilia, which are cities surrounding Milan, I think. But essentially, he became Bishop of Milan sort of out of political pressure. He actually just was... It was around the time when Theodosius did his famous thing with, um, with a Roman gladiator who was detained for being a homosexual and then released, and that caused a bit of a an uproar where he where everyone wanted him to be jailed but then some other people wanted him to be to compete in the games essentially it was enough of a political pressure that Theodosius laid a trap for several folks at games he had hosted as a precursor to having his army close in and kill 7000 folks essentially this was like one of the one of the first roman emperors after constantine so much like what polycarp did Ambrose was actually a bit unique in that he was willing to challenge the Roman Emperor. A bold move of his time, because that'd be like, that'd almost be like Tim Keller going up against President Trump and saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing the, you shouldn't be, be doing these pro-abortion, or you should be, you shouldn't be writing executive orders, you know, you should be respecting the Constitution and the Supreme Courts and the Capitol Hill's authority. They, essentially, it's kind of like that, but it's like much more life and death. It's not just political censorship he's risking, he's risking his own life because in many ways it was because of his pleasure, of his pressures to go from being Roman governor to bishop that he was elevated to the status of bishop. Even Actually, uh, I'm backing up a little bit. When he was bishop of Milan, he actually wanted to not be bishop, but in response to this incident, he actually went to, went to Milan. They were electing a new bishop when the previous one had died just so that they could prevent any unrest that might arise in the Theodosius event. So he actually went there as a political presence just so that he could he could sort of buffer anything might happen. But everyone unanimously, unanimously voted him in as bishop, and he didn't want the office, but eventually the emperor put him under arrest until he accepted, so he's like, okay, I'll do it. And uh, something I thought that was kind of cool is I'm not sure if this is a Roman Catholic tradition. Maybe you can clarify, Greg. But, but often there is a thing called patron saints, which is like saints you might 
revere in a tradition. And so patron saints, they're not quite like you pray to them, but they're kind of like seen as people who give special tangible merits and blessings, I guess, to certain classes of folk. And among the list of folks that Ambrose is a patron saint of is beekeepers, wax refiners, and geese. Which, if you know if you know me anything about me, I absolutely detest geese. I think they were made the fall, just like mosquitoes. Or honestly, I, I hate them. They're just the most prima dog creatures ever met. I'll just leave it at that. Don't ever get don't ever get me don't ever be around me when I'm mad at a goose. So basically, go back to his contributions to the Lloyd Church. He promoted a, a type of scene called antiphonal chant, which is basically is, this really works well in cathedrals. But you basically have one group of folks singing a refrain from a hymn or a liturgical song, and you have another group of folks singing a response, creating sort of an echoey effect. Which, if you know, which if you're into a more mystical form of worship, it's actually really cool. I'm not heard of examples myself, but I can ima- imagine that'd be a pretty epic thing to envision. Sort of like looking at Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, perhaps, where they have lots of murals in the ceiling. And as I mentioned, he dialogue with a lot of a lot of the secular and <clears throat> Theological guys of his time, like the likes of Origen, Philo, Athanasius, Basil, Caesarea, and. This is why I like to plug my stuff in. Various batteries are able. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'm sorry, the technical difficulties didn't. This didn't happen during the dry run. It always doesn't. And, but, but among. Aside from collaborating with a number of the theological guys of his time, like. Perhaps his most significant contribution is he was he baptized and instructed Saint Augustine, who apparently was the only one who outclassed him in terms of his raw theology and influence. He also combated Arianism and paganism with tools like the Nicene Creed, which by this time had been widely accepted from the Council of Nicaea, and he also refused holy sees or churches to priests who were of an Arian and bent, because so zealous was he against Arianism. And he was also unfaltering and challenging even Roman emperors in terms of personal holiness, such as the Theodosius incident I alluded to. So, we have some factoids, now that we've introduced the character to kind of round things out. This is a quote I, I kind of like from the Wikipedia article I read on him, where basically he's he promotes be all things all men. And if you're ever wondering where the old saying, when Rome do as the Romans do, he's actually the, the one who quoted that. Basically, this quote has to do with how he was somewhat flexible in his liturgical observance like kind of like if you're in if you're in a Roman Catholic church they have one more tradition where there might be a lot of kneeling or if you're more in a Protestant kind of church there might be more emphasis on written hymns and prayers or benedictions but he's more of the bent where if you're in a place where you have to to bow on the knee go ahead and bow the knee if you're in a place where they might fast on Saturday versus Sunday. Go ahead and do that. And essentially, he's saying, without compromising the core elements of what makes worship worship, such as reciting the creeds or singing praises or reading from scripture, you know, you can tailor it to the traditions of the area you're in. Being all things to all men is in the spirit of what Paul would say in his epistles. Yeah, I mean, he coined the phrase "When in Rome, do as the Romans." Right, which originally I thought was a secular phrase until I came upon that, so I thought it was kind of interesting. Ah, let's see here. Ah, of course, because of his use of antiphonal chant, because he wrote a number of hymns, he was actually accused of being somewhat 
but Witching has used the music and his and his liturgical freedom, so he took some flack for that, according to the first quote. And actually, the second the second quote I have here, he was so focused on personal holiness that, in many ways, he personally was kind of a champion of a priest not marrying and fo- focusing on celibacy and focusing on the, not so much on celibacy, but more like on purity before the Lord. So much so that his in his sermons he would preach in such a way that some would actually some actually among the Roman nobility were focused on not allowing their young daughters to go there unless they choose a life of, of celibacy and, and not being able to carry on the family line by marrying. So it 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 just goes to show how focused on purity Ambrose was in his writings, but but sometimes it can be taken the wrong way or too far, I guess. So. These are some more elements of his critique that some folks might have had from popular understanding. And basically, I got on my work side page where I have our textbook and Wikipedia articles, a couple references I borrow for the quotes from. And is there any questions? My name is Anvesh, and um, I'm here to present on St. Athanasius of Alexandria and how he has developed New Testament canon. Still, Today, we use those 27 books as an inspired word of God. In, in my presentation, I would like to talk about four things. Um, in the introduction, I would like to introduce Athanasius, um, his family background and his theological background. And in the next section, I would like to talk about Arianism, which is a heresy um, presented by a, uh, a guy named Arius. Next, uh, I would like to talk about Athanasius' contribution to the New Testament canon and then the conclusions. Um, in my outline, when you look at the Roman number two introduction, um, Athanasius was, was born to a Christian family in the city of Alexandria. When you look at the slide here, um, Athen- um, Alexandria um, is the second largest city and the major economic center in the Egypt. Uh, here's the Egypt, and there on the top with the marker, the, that is uh, Alexandria, um, which, is, which is very closer to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, Greg often talks about how apostles, uh, when they go and plant a church, they choose the major cities first, and then the um, uh, rest of the churches were shot by the spider web principle. So Alexandria is considered to be one of the major cities in the Egypt. Uh, Saint Mark was the first one who went to Egypt and planted a church over there. Uh, but anyway, um, Athanasius, uh, his parents are very wealthy um, that they could afford him to uh, go to a good schools, secular education, and he was very thoroughly educated with the Greek philosophy, um, even though Greek is not his mother tongue. Coptic is an Egyptian language. Uh, but he's very thoroughly um, educated in the Greek. Most of Athanasius' literatures 
or written in the Greek. Uh, uh, most of the times he admits that he doesn't know much of the Hebrew. Uh, he wishes he could learn more of the Hebrew, but anyway, he's a very great philosopher in the, um, you know, Greek. Uh, and he, um, he was a, um, Alexander, uh, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, uh, Rome number two, point number C, from, you know, 312 to 328, was a mentor of Athanasius. Um, around 315, Athanasius was ordained as a deacon, um, and you know it was an obvious reason that Athanasius is so bright and you know theologically um, clear and succinct with his uh, ideas. In 328, he became the 20th bishop of Alexandria after Bishop Alexander has passed away. Um, he is one of the most notable figures in the Church of Alexandria, and some of his writings. Um, before he became bishop, uh, his writings on against the Gentiles on, on the incarnation, and after he became um, bishop, you know, he fought against Arianism, and which I will discuss um, in the next section. Roman number three, um, we'll talk about a little bit about the Arianism. Uh, Arius uh, was a Christian presbyter. Uh, which means an elder, uh, and preached in a Brackelis, which is uh, right next to the Alexandria. There is a city called Brackelis. Um, you know, um, most of the times, in when you take any of the major city, it is divided into two major sections. In general, like uh, we're discipling uh, some of the people from India, uh, where. You know, you know, he, he, even though it's called as Hyderabad, but there is another city called Sikandrabad, um, you know, which is considered to be the two major sections of that city. In the same way, uh, similarly, Alexandria, Brackley's is, you know, kind of pretty uh, close to Alexandria, it comes under the Alexandria. Uh, but anyway, Arius was from those church. Uh, he was a priest and he is a presbyter. Um, Roman number three and point B, Arianism is a concept that asserts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was begotten by God, uh, God the Father, at a point, at a point in time. Uh, it's distinct from Father and is therefore subordinate to the Father. This is one of the major heresy um, uh, in, in the church. Um, but Arianism mainly teaches that uh, Jesus Christ was begotten from the Father at a certain point of time. He was not God. <clears throat> and uh, in point C, you can see that the Arians came to the first ecumenical council. Ecumenical council is where they, uh, all the church uh, leaders get together to resolve a particular issue. That's ecumenical council, and this Arianism was the first uh, ecumenical council issue. Um, and Arians were very confident that um, Arians often accused um, Bishop Alexander of Alexandria uh, that Alexander of Alexandria and his 
successor Athanasius was clearly not uh, following the teachings of Arianism, but Arians were very strong in their viewpoint that Jesus Christ was begotten Son of God at a point of time. Jesus Christ is not God. And they are very confident. Um, in my conclusions, I'll tell a little bit more about it. Um, in my next section, Roman number four, um, I'm going to talk about New Testament canon. The word canon came from the Greek word canon, uh, which means rule or a measuring stick. Uh, Christians became the first to use the term reference to the scriptures. Um, I believe I have a NASB version of the Galatians 6.16. If you have an ESV, um, uh, if you could please turn to the ESV Bibles that, that, so that we can compare different translations and see. Um, Galatians 6.16 says, and those who will walk by this rule, rule is canon. Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the um, Israel of God. Uh, can anyone give me the ESV version of it? E ESV? Um, yeah, it's, a, it's the same. NASB and the ESV are kind of same. Um, but anyway, um, you know, Greg often teaches law of reverse negative. Uh, kind of thought that's kind of funny. Uh, law of reverse negative, when you read it, those who will not walk by the rule, peace and mercy will not be upon them. Like Arian, the, you know, Arian and Arianism, like, they doesn't consider the rule, uh, you know, they did not walk according to the rule. Um, you, you know, some of, the, some of the times this rule is often translation, translated as boundaries or spear. Uh, so Athanasius is the first person to identify the same 27 books of the New Testament that are in use today. Uh, when you look at on the slide here, um, you know, you can see how the New Testament used uh, different um, books and, uh, you know, at, at 400, how these 27 books have clearly recognized as the inspired word of God. Um, you know, here 200, you can see that the first and second John and Jude revelation and revelation of Peter, wisdom of Solomon's are not, uh, you know, th these books are clearly in use. Um, the main reason why Athanasius have made these 27 books is uh, during those church times, like most of the people used uh, some other books, uh, you know, here you have uh, Shepherd of Hermas, Letter of Barnabas, Gospel of Hebrews, and Revelation of Peter, Acts of Peter, Dache, and not only this, there are many texts that the Christians have followed. And you know, when when we say Second Second uh, Timothy three sixteen, um, you know, God's word is inspired for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. So if, if I use uh, a book of Mormons as my, you know, viewpoint of an inspired word of God, I am like terribly under deceived. Uh, so uh, you can clearly see how the uh, books have emerged and Athanasius is the first one 
who coined 27 books as a New Testament canon. Um, and we are using those 27 books still now. And in the conclusions, uh, you know, during those times, Athanasius was banished uh, no fewer than five times each banishment and return to the Alexandria representing either a change in the emperor or a shift in the makeup of the uh, palace's uh, ecclesiastical clique and that has emperors here. You know, at the time, Athanasius was so completely out of imperial favor that he felt deserted by all his supporters. During one such hour, he uttered his famous defense, Athanasius against the world. Thank you. Hello, my name is Deanna Brown, and I am presenting um, on St. Athanasius's On the Incarnation, which is also called uh, The Incarnation of the Word of God. And I want to start by just talking a little bit about Athanasius's character. I love how Anvesh gave so much background on him, so I don't have to talk about it. But um, his character was, um, he's just very humble. And um, his writings aren't anything um, spectacular in the way of like inventing something new. He was very, very committed to the apostles' teachings. And um, however, every single page, and I read this on a Kindle version, granted you. So every like four pages of Kindle is one page of his actual, you know, in the printed copy. Every page I was like, wow, whoa, like this is incredible, like seriously. And I, I even read it in high school before I remembered a couple things from it, but like it is mind blowing and it's like just the simple truth of the gospel. He just has a very amazing way of simplifying something and making it very profound. Um, just just because it's scripture. And um, and another thing, I think Anvesh might have mentioned this, but, um, you know, he was exiled like five times and um, just for sticking to the truths of, of scripture. But also, he did not want to become bishop by any means. Um, he was actually essentially forced to. Like, um, he ran away when he thought he was going to be elected bishop. And then um, people, like, came and, like, surrounded the building he was in and saying, like, we want him as our bishop and stuff like that. It was pretty incredible. So he, like, was very, um, very, very humble man. So with that, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of background about um, the on the Incarnation. It was written before uh, 319 AD, which um, was, it was one of his earlier works, if not the earliest, which is incredible um, based on its um, depth. But, um, and he was, he was also became bishop when he was 30. So like he was a young guy. Um, so some of his uh, polemical works, um, and if you don't know what the word polemical is, it's basically like a harsh attack on, on a, false doctrine, basically. Um, some of his polemical works include the Orations Against the Arians, which came later, um, after he wrote this, Letters to Serapion, and On the Holy Spirit, which unfortunately I didn't get to. <laughs> um, but he was very, um, two things that he was, um, he pushed very hard um, against was subordination, which is what we talked about, just a, a little refresher, the eternal subordination of the Son um, again, comes from this false idea that the Son uh, was created by the Father and then, like, created, um, helped him create all things. But the fact is that the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit created all together. <clears throat> and also, um, Athanasius fought very hard for the doctrine of the Trinity. So, um, 
it's interesting to me that even before Athanasius took on the Arians and fought against what they what um, Arius was proposing, um, he in this book before he even took them on, he was very hard against saying the Word was creator. The Word, you know, established this. So being the Son of God, um, it's very clear. So the table of contents, just to give you an idea of the flow of this book. Uh, starts with the creation and fall, and he takes a long time on the creation and the fall, which you'd think, why, what does that have to do with the incarnation? It has everything to do with the incarnation. Uh, then he goes into what's called the divine dilemma and its solution in the incarnation. He has two chapters on that. Then more on the death of Christ, the resurrection, uh, and then he refutes uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. Essentially, um, remember that verse that talks about uh, to the Jews that it crosses a stumbling block and to the Gentiles it's folly. So he kind of uh, explains that a little bit more and refutes it. And then he concludes. So in my presentation I'm going to talk mostly about uh, the creation and the fall because it's a necessary background and I'm also going to talk about the dilemma. So again, uh, this was before the New Testament canon was uh, fully ratified or established. Um, again, all of the books, including uh, books of the Apocrypha, were also being read in churches at this time. Um, I found it interesting that in his book he said, he quotes from, uh, quote, the most helpful book, uh, The Shepherd, which is the shepherd of, of Hermas, I believe is how you say it. So that's an apocryphal book, but he doesn't say that it's inspired scripture. He just says it is a most helpful book, and I thought that was interesting. And also, he, quote, he quotes scripture left and right in, in this book, but um, there's no chapters and verses, obviously, because that was added in the 16th century. So uh, when you read it, that's some historical background. All right, so getting into the argument. So why is creation relevant? Um, throughout this presentation, I'm also going to quote him a lot because quite frankly, I can't say it better than he did. So <laughs> um, again, read the book, but um, this is just the main points of his argument. So quote, the renewal of creation has been wrought by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. And his point is that creation and salvation have the same agent. And he talks about, he equates essentially creation with the restoration of all things, like um, God brought about and created salvation. So then he attacks, um, in his polemic way, um, some other ideas of his time about creation. Because if you don't get creation right, you're not going to get salvation right, is basically his argument. So the Epicureans of his day uh, said there's no mind behind the universe. Does that sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> Evolution? That's not a new, new thing. It's, it's totally, uh, he fought against the same thing. And it's interesting how he fights against these arguments. I think uh, he takes some of our modern day approaches to fighting against these, but he also has some very unique insights. So first of all, he's like, okay, Epicureans, you own, your own existence defies that fact like just look at yourselves like if you think you have a mind like who who is the mind that created your mind uh, he takes that stance um, but also he says if there's no mind in our in our uh, day and age we call it intelligent design if there's no intelligent design then there would just be one of everything because it would not be unique he said there would be many moons everything would be a moon there would be a, everything would be a sun like you can't have any variation if there's no mind behind creation 
And he actually uses the term spontaneous generation. There's no spontaneous generation. I thought that was interesting. I was like, oh, I thought that was a modern term. No, it's not. So um, then he takes on Plato's argument. Uh, Plato says that God used what already existed to create the world, which um, he kind of answers, God isn't creator unless he actually creates. He said in that case, God would be a craftsman. He wouldn't be a creator. And then, you know, you have to say, okay, then who is creator? It's the same question. So um, he also takes on the Gnostics, which basically the Gnostics said, well, God isn't creator because the material world is bad. And if God is good, then he can't be the creator. So Athanasius doesn't really say much except to quote scripture about this one. Um, so again, he doesn't specifically say Mark 10, uh, 6 through 9, but he talks about Genesis and then uses um, part of Mark 10. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It's interesting that he uses this passage, not like, you know, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. Like he uses this passage to say like, even man and woman, like he created man and woman and he joined them together. And that's a good thing. He just goes straight to what I would think would be the end. Um, and then he also quoted from John 1, 3. Uh, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Okay, so then he concludes, uh, quote, such are the notions which men put forward, but the impiety of their foolish talk is plainly declared by the divine teaching of the Christian faith. So I, th I thought that this was very forceful, and like, you know, in our, in our day and age, we sit in our classes and are taught evolution, and we're like, well, the Christian faith believes this, you know, and he's like, no, like, it's ridiculous to believe anything except for the Christian faith. Like, it really is ridiculous. You just have to look at the facts. Okay, then he starts going into logical arguments, and I put uh, t.f. as a, um, this kind of like, if you learn about logic, that's the therefore that they always use or imply at the end of their arguments. So he argues, God is the fountainhead of all goodness. Second, it's impossible for one who is good to be grudging about anything. Therefore, judging, or sorry, grudging existence to none, he made all things out of nothing through his own word. It's awesome. <laughs> All right, here's another argument. Man is created in God's image. And I added, therefore, man has reason. This is kind of an enthymeme. There's a missing premise. The second premise would be that God has reason. <laughs> therefore, we who have his, his image uh, are reasoning creatures. And uh, then Athanasius, as a side note, points out that other creatures, so everything else that's created, is different from man because other creatures lack the bestowing of God's grace, which is interesting. I've always learned, oh, man is the only one that has a soul, but like, we are the ones that are granted God's grace. All right, continuing on, uh, this was the state before the fall. If man guarded the grace and retained the loveliness of their original innocence, then the life of paradise should be theirs. And God's warning, uh, if they ate uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, he said, you shall surely die. And Athanasius points out that this meant, you shall surely die and remain in the state of death and corruption. 
and he uses the word corruption a lot uh, in the rest of his argument. So um, man began the process of becoming corrupted entirely. So we see this right before Noah and the flood and he was commanded uh, to build the ark. That was, you know, God was saying, wow, their corruption is getting uh, to a really uh, high level. Um, and man was constantly devising new kinds of sin. When I was reading this part of, of the argument, just the, you know, the sinfulness of sin, as Greg has talked about several times, is just very heavy when you read this part. He doesn't, you know, just the fact of, like, man isn't trying to be good. Like, man is constantly devising ways of, you know, destroying God's creation. Um, so then he goes into a, a, another slight argument, or side argument, excuse me, what God exists, and then he says that evil is non-being. And so he says, as man had at the beginning come into being out of non-existence, so they were now on the way to returning through corruption to non-existence again. And this isn't any type of annihilationism or anything like that. It's just the fact of um, being, um, having a purpose in life. Men were becoming purposelessness, purposeless because of uh, their constant warring against God. Um, and then he ends by saying, from the law of death, there was no escape. Okay, so that's where we are. That's the background that he has to build on in order to even have any theology of the incarnation. So here comes the dilemma. Uh, this next quote is crucial. It would, of course, have been unthinkable that God should go back upon his word and that man, having transgressed, should not die. But it was equally monstrous that beings which once had shared the nature of the word should perish and turn back again into non-existence through corruption. Okay, then he asks, what was God being good to do? Now this isn't like, oh my gosh, God didn't know what to do. He's actually presenting it to our minds. Like, what was he to do with this? And then, of course, he goes on to explain what God did. Um, it was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself, which um, I think that's essentially crucial. It's not because, like, you know, the main reason is not because he loved us, even though he did. <laughs> Those are like, that goes along with the fact that God's character had to be maintained. So what, or rather who, was it that was needed for such grace and such recall as we required? Who save the word of God himself? So then he talks about, um, this is my uh, heading, the, the argument, the only solution. He didn't say that in his, um, in his chapter. Um, so thus taking a body like our own, because all our bodies were liable to the corruption of death, he surrendered his body to death instead of all and offered it to the Father. This he did that he might turn again to incorruption, men who had turned back to corruption, and make them alive through death by the approbation of his body and by the grace of his resurrection. And if this sounds incredibly theological to you, which it is, um, I needed an example. I have been searching for a good example of this my whole life, really, especially the past six months. And it was incredible that God um, <laughs> essentially brought this topic up in a church history class. Um, this um, 
I'm going to su summarize this page and then there's going to be an example to come that I think really draws this out. So corruption could not be removed otherwise than through death. Here's another argument. The immortal word, by definition, cannot die. The word had to assume a body capable of death. That's why he came. For the solidarity of mankind is such that, by virtue of the words indwelling in a single human body, the corruption which goes with death has lost its power over all. So this is the example that made me cry. <laughs> I hope I can keep it together. Though you know how it is when some great king enters a large city and dwells in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored and the enemies and robbers cease to molest it. It's incredible. So using this uh, king metaphor still, a king who has founded a city so far from neglecting it, when through the carelessness of its inhabitants, it is, it is attacked by robbers, avenges it and saves it from destruction, having regard rather to his own honor than to the people's neglect. Again, um, how the honor of God is protected even though he still loves and cares for us, and that was another reason he came down. So in this is the uh, kind of concluding slide, um, which takes into um, acknowledgement all that we've, uh, all that he's built upon at this point. The rescue of mankind from corruption was the proper part only of him who made them in the beginning. It was our sorry case that caused the word to come down, our transgression that called out his love for us, so that he made haste to help us and to appear among us. It is we who were the cause of his taking human form, and for our salvation that his great love, he was both born and manifested in a human body. So um, if you have any questions, I, I can take them, but um, I also used Greg's Kindle, so thank you to Greg. Um, but. Um, I, again, I highly, highly encourage you to read this because um, I mainly explained the first two chapters in depth, and then I was like, no, I can't even talk anymore. I think I already talked like 15 or 20 minutes, so do you have any questions? So I'm Stephen Leopold, and I will be presenting on Pope Gregory I. Um, I want to start by saying uh, the raising up of uh, Pope Gregory I during a time of great famine, plague, and political upheaval. Uh, shows God's sovereignty and a desire to preserve his church in uh, an unstable and troubled times. So Gregory the Great uh, is also known as Pope Gregory the First, um, and Gregory the Dialogas uh, was born in 540. Um, like I said, during troubled times, there was lots of famine and political upheaval. There was a lot of invaders coming to Rome at that time, and this was depends on when you want to date the Middle Ages or the medieval time. Uh, some people will, will date him. Um, right at the beginning going into the Middle Ages, some as the first pope uh, of the Middle Ages or the first pope going into the Middle Ages, uh, which we'll see why that's important. So he was elected pope in 590, but I want to talk about his pre-papacy first and then go on to kind of splitting his life into two separate times. So um, Gregor the Great was uh, did have um, a family lineage in the papacy, Felix the Third and uh, Agapetus uh, the first were two 
previous popes, um, which Felix III was definitely uh, a relative. I think it was his great great grandfather. Then uh, Agapitus I uh, is presumed to be uh, in a family family line there. So um, he came from a pretty predominant family, um, very wealthy, had lots of land um, and different villas in the area within Rome. Um, but he chose the monastic life. When his father died, who was, um, I'll find his name here in a minute, but uh, when his father died, he actually turned the villa into a monastery um, and he devoted himself to the life of a monk, prayer, celibacy, um, fasting, which there's a lot of speculation with how extreme he took fasting and solitude, uh, which has actually deteriorated, deteriorated his health uh, in the long run. And he was very serious about the monastic life. So, um, due to his correlation with his family, uh, he actually then went into the uh, church realm as an official. He served as one of the seven deacons of Rome, and then a little bit later as a representative to the imperial court. Um, before he was elected Pope, which prepared him for his papacy. Uh, he learned a lot of administrative uh, roles there and um, definitely served uh, as he walked into the Pope um, or walked into the uh, the papacy. So he was actually, uh, when he was elected of the Imperial Court to Rome, um, one of the main his main objectives was there's uh, the schism of the three chapters in Italy, which he was sent to help heal and, and mend that relationship. So later in 590, when uh, Pelagius II died due to the plague, um, they actually elected Gregory, the greatest pope, but he was unwilling. He didn't really want to go. It wasn't something that was on his radar, um, but that was something that... Uh, you know, back in uh, earlier times that they would force you to do. <laughs> I don't care if you want to be Pope. <laughs> Put the hat on. <laughs> uh, so, uh, although he was unwilling at first, he uh, quickly got to work where his administrative um, skill set became really useful in the time of the famine and the plague. He first began actually, um, and you know, going back a little bit, you know, his time in prayer and uh, deep, heavily reading the scriptures and his monastic life, uh, played a big role in what he would accomplish, so it wasn't wasn't all political. So he actually first began with the relief of the poor during the famine and the plague, um, and then actually removed some of the officials in Rome due to pride and misdeeds and replaced them um, with monks. So he did a little bit of um, reformation, for lack of better term. So Gregory is actually listed as one of the four main doctors of the Latin Church. Those other uh, doctors of the Latin Church, but like we said in a couple other presentations, Ambrose, Augustine, and Jerome, um, and then of the four great doctors, Pope Gregory would be the last of those four due to his contributions to theology and doctrine um, and liturgy, which we'll get into here in a minute. Um, but during his papacy, he actually started writing. writing. Um, some of his most notable works are called Pastoral Care, which is still used today by Protestant and Catholics um, on really how to shepherd a people and uh, I think due to his monastic years played a heavily heavy influence on that he also wrote homilies on the gospels Ezekiel song of songs um, which were used for hundreds of years uh, throughout the church as uh, primary primary documents so due to the political upheaval especially with the the schisms in Italy 
um, and due to kind of an abandonment by the emperor and inactivity at the time, uh, Gregory actually became um, uh, the unofficial ruler of Italy. So he actually appointed generals, paid soldiers, and arranged relief throughout all of the political uh, arena. Although it wasn't an official title, he did um, take that over. So this actually helped when uh, the Lombards, who were a dramatic people, um, were invading Rome and Italy at the time. So, uh, and what they wanted to do with the Lombards, um, they wanted to take over and establish Arian Christianity. So Gregory actually personally went to the king of the Lombards um, and made a peace treaty because he saw that the siege wasn't going to stop. Um, he wasn't going to be effective in in any military sense. So uh, he actually personally went to the king of the Lombards, which through his um, family connections and you know what he had done in the realm before, he was actually able to go personally to the king and, and make a peace treaty. So other notable accomplishments that Gregory uh, had during his papacy um, included reforming the education system from an apprentice style to a more academic university style. Um, one of the most notable things that Gregory is known for is sending out the first large-scale missions from Rome. So he actually sent out uh, Augustine to Britain to convert the pagan people there. And uh, through history, we know that Augustine accomplished that work as, as he headed it, but there was obviously tons of missionaries sent out. Uh, he was first to coin the term uh, of the papacy, servant of the servants of God, which uh, the Catholic Church actually still refers to the Pope today as the servant of the servants of God, though we could say that uh, it might just be nominal, but uh, in Pope Gregory's time, um, though he coined it, I think it was in humility and seemed to be pretty accurate. Uh, he also revised worship and liturgy during the time. Um, if you guys are familiar with the Gregorian chants, that comes from Gregory the Great. Um, and then uh, he did end up dying pretty early in 590. Uh, but as you know, upon his death, he was declared a saint by popular demand. There was no uh, no one speaking against Gregory at that time. Uh, that to not be a saint, there were you know some people who didn't like his uh, how much control he had over politics and through the church and I'm sure Greg will add a little bit of that here in a minute but um, you know kind of in conclusion it was Gregory the Great's work uh, and calling to the papacy during this time uh, which God used to, to save and change um, I'm sorry to save the church from being taken over politically um, and to lay a foundation for the Catholic Church to enter the Middle Ages thank you my name is John Gray. I'll be talking on Jerome. To begin, I'd like to ask you all to pretend with me that you are in a church and we're beginning the worship service and I'm about to do the scripture reading. This is an ancient church service. Please turn with me to Deuteronomio uh, capitulo 6, versículo 7. Is everybody with me? Encuculaseas continuamente a tus hijos. Hablales de as cuando estés en tu casa y cuando vayas por el camino. Cuando te acuestes y cuando te levantes. ¿Comprendes? 
A major problem in the early church was that they did not comprendo. Um, <laughs> that is, uh, language is always evolving. Uh, Greek was a common language. Latin became a common language throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, Jerome was a man who is most notably known for translating the scriptures from the original manuscripts uh, into uh, the common version of Latin, the vulgar or common Latin. It was known as the Vulgate, and it was the standard Latin translation for a thousand years. Um, and it made the scriptures accessible to those who uh, spoke the common Latin but didn't have the scripture in their own or their first language. Um, Jerome is a man on whom uh, God's grace was great. Uh, he, however, was not known for his graciousness. So we've talked about uh, uh, some latter saints and some former saints. Let's orient ourselves. The year is about 347. So this is approximately 30 years after the public conversion of Constantine, about 20 years after the First Council of Nicaea. Uh, Jerome is born in between Italy and Greece. Uh, interestingly, you have the common language Greek and the common language Latin. Um, and uh, he was born to Christian parents, not originally as a Christian. Uh, he went to school uh, to study grammar and rhetoric and philosophy, uh, which became uh, very important in his, for his preparation and his ability to translate the scriptures well into the common language. Um, when he was a young man, about age 19, he was baptized, uh, converted to Christianity. Um, he uh, soon became uh, familiar with the ascetics. So the ascetics we've discussed were known for strict exercises to kind of war against sin, right? So there's obviously a very healthy aspect to that. And then asceticism is known for taking something probably too far. And uh, he was one of those who went off to live in the Syrian desert after his studies. And uh, like Martin Luther, he experienced uh, vehement, violent temptations and uh, outbursts of, you know, the flesh, and he found himself unable to have the grace to uh, restrain himself, and so he was in great uh, turmoil in himself, and he was attempting to uh, follow the Lord in true holiness in his asceticism. Uh, in his time uh, away from cities, he became exposed to some translators of the scripture from, uh, from the Septuagint, who were influential. He learned uh, Greek and Latin um, as a young man. Um, let's see, he, uh, he went back to, I believe he went back to Italy, and he became known for his sharp criticism of some of the Roman practices, such as, you know, uh, pedophilia and, you know, he, he, was, he, he had a very sharp tongue. I said he was not known for being gracious. Uh, this is true. He, he had sharp and sarcastic insults uh, against those who were pretty openly sinful, especially in the church. And this, uh, while not very gracious, was also like asceticism had uh, there was a lot about that these attacks that were really right 
and calling people towards holiness. Um, he lived with a lot of shame. Uh, he probably could have excelled more in uh, being more in the full council of the church and discipled in a healthier community um, and, and grown in grace in that way. Um, once in about the year 375, so now he's about 30 years old, um, he had a vision wherein he saw himself uh, in a courtroom of Christ and he was accused for being a great lover of the classics. Now, we've said he was a student of uh, rhetoric, of speech, of grammar, of philosophy. He loved Cicero, for example. Uh, and he was probably uh, the foremost Christian scholar in the world by age 30. Uh, I just turned 34, and I'm known for being like real hospitable, but not being as much of a scholar. So uh, I could look up to a man like this. Uh, so he was a pretty young guy, and you know, like I said, God had, God's grace was upon him to be uh, the foremost scholar in Christendom in the whole world. So, like Paul, God was raising him up to do a mighty work that would be a blessing to the church for over a millennium. Uh, he had this vision where he was in a, a tribunal of Christ and the charge against him was given in Latin that he was a follower of Cicero and not a follower of Christ. Uh, humiliated, he renounced his, uh, his involvement in philosophy and in the classics. Um, and although they had been a great blessing to him in preparing for him for his magnum opus, did I say that right? Magnum opus? Um, uh, he renounced all such involvement in classical literature, and he let his focus become the scriptures, and really, only the scriptures. Perhaps his life could be summed up in the quote, there we go, um, in the quote, make knowledge of the scripture your love, live with them, meditate on them, Make them the sole object of your knowledge and inquiries. Um, he became, uh, he was summoned in 382 to Rome to be secretary to the Pope and one of the candidates to secede the Pope. However, he moved away from Rome sometime thereafter to Bethlehem. And while the Pope had commissioned him to begin translating the scriptures into the vulgar language, the common version of Latin, uh, he left his service to the Pope, and there in Bethlehem as the head of, I believe, a monastery, he finished over the course of 23 years his translation of the scriptures, first working just from the Septuagint, but then seeing the great importance and having learned Hebrew of working from the original Hebrew manuscripts, he produced a common Latin version of the scriptures after 23 years of diligent study, uh, the fruit of Christ's work in his life truly. The Vulgate became the version of the Latin scriptures, like we've said, uh, for a thousand years. Um, and I'd like to bring this to a close with a quote, from, or with a scripture reading. If everybody could take out their English translations of the scriptures, we're going to reread this in our language and appreciate uh, together for a moment from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
verse 7, uh, how important it is that men like Jerome and others, for their diligent scholarship at the impetus of Christ and whoever discipled them, um, brought the scriptures to us in our language. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. You shall teach the scriptures diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So thank you to men like Jerome and other translators who gave us the ability to do this in our own language, in our first language. Yeah, I'll be talking about uh, St. Augustine's City of God. So something I'd like to just say before I begin is that as you will see later on, the City of God is a pretty extensive book. It contains 22 books. <laughs> so I don't actually read all of them because there's too much. It'll probably take me a half a year to actually finish them. And yeah, so, I've, I've, so I, like what I'm presenting here is really just a survey. There's even some concept that I don't actually get it fully. So pardon me. So anyway, uh, I would say like this is one, probably one of Augustine's most famous and most important work. And the other one that he has is really famous is the Confessions as also on the Trinity. So, but uh, yeah, if only like somebody actually presented on Confessions, it would be great because that's about like his personal life and like uh, that's where some people people actually call him the Doctor of Grace too. But anyway, in the City of God, like it's, I think it's one of the cornerstone towards the Western church and Western thought. It talks about the suffering of the righteous. It also talks about existence of evil, conflict between free will, divine omniscience, and also the doctrines that a lot of these doctrines actually go into the, uh, I guess, the systematic theology and biblical theology that we have today. So let's briefly talk about the Roman Empire. So it's interesting the, uh, with Christianity and the Roman Empire. As, as I've said before, like in the first century, it's really uh, like Christianity. It's really just um, battling with, like with the uh, uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, is battling within itself. That that when it comes to the AD seventy, like the destruction of Jerusalem, like all all this is pretty much wiped out, and all this actually went into the Rome, like the Christianity went into Roman culture. Then when you come to the second century, it's really about uh, battling like the Hellenistic culture with Greeks. Then when you come to the third, the third century, you are come you are coming to talk about uh, uh, the, on the Trinity and on the ideals. Like the, you start to talk about theology more deeply, and it's really where all the foundations of theology start to get laid down. So. Um, like briefly, I said before, the Roman Empire, like uh, where they began, is really with the Hellenistic culture. So they are polytheistic in nature, and they're also really pious, pietistic. So what that means is really they always just, it's kind of you have to please the gods for them to do something good to you, so for something good to happen. Then there's also, uh, there's also the imperial cult. And this is one of the things that uh, caused the persecution of Christians uh, during the Roman Empire, during when uh, during the third century, even the first century too. So, in the imperial cult, it's really about em emperor worship. And so, uh, like just right before Constantine, you also have uh, Diocletian, which 
she enforced emperor worship a lot a lot so there's like a lot of persecution of christians like christians die almost every single day during that time it's also that during the period of, so at, at the period of time where uh, christians they start to flee then they start to renounce their faith because of the, this harsh persecution then within the roman empire there's also a lot of in, uh, internal strife like you will see that the whole roman empire it's, it occupies the whole Europe, but it's split into different regions, and all of them are conquered by. They have different Augustus and different Caesars, and so beginning of the fourth century, this is where Constantine actually comes in. So it's really interesting because uh, with the oncoming of Constantine, which he started really uh, on Britain, they kind of conquered downwards, and then with him becoming the uh, emperor. Like Christianity become the state religion, so I'll leave his story to another time. You can read up on itself because <laughs> I won't cover it. It's pretty. I, I think it's pretty interesting to me the conversion of Constantine. And uh, they say like they always call Constantine the Great. And I just I, I guess like uh, some sources says like besides the re Reformation that he brought with Christianity, that's also just by his uh like a. Uh, I guess what we call like a social reforms and his uh, strategy on like the wars and all the the things that he's done for the Roman Empire is great enough to be called great. So uh, now coming to the 410 AD, this is like the really the first time where Rome was sacked, and this is the first time that Rome is sacked in eight, almost 800 years of their whole history. So this this brought a really great uh, impact to the whole Roman society. Like everybody was surprised, everybody was taken aback. Like everybody didn't expect Rome to be taken over, and it's uh, almost like the biggest city in uh, the Roman Empire. So they're saying in Rome, like they had almost eight hundred thousand people. It's the the most populated city. So some of them, they say it's because of the Western Roman Empire's increasing vulnerability and weaknesses. So at this point of time, there's a lot of rebellion and there's a lot of usurpation. I don't know how to pronounce that word, but like it's just like a battle between the thrones, like who will be the next. Like there will be like people, like a, it's just a constant battle within itself. And also the Roman army also becoming really increasing barbaric and disloyal. So even Jerome himself wrote in grief, he said, if Rome can perish, what can be saved? So with this, there, there, there begin, there's called, they start to have this strife between uh, Christians and the pagans. Even though this at this point of time, Christian was a state religion. Like people, like the pagans begin to say like, uh, like it's like this, all this happened because like, we did not worship the pagan gods the gods are angry with us and this actually caused a lot of like younger Christians to actually fall in their faith like their faith was really shaken so a lot of the um, a lot of the church, church fathers I guess the other church fathers they just come to Augustine because he was like the person he was the number one person and when we look at uh, Augustine's history it's pretty interesting too because he didn't start out as a Christian theologian he already started out as a pagan theologian 
and even in his pagan theologian period of time, uh, he was always praised by his mentors. That like everybody just say he he was like a genius in some ways. Then after that, like listening to Ambrose, like he really start to have his, this change of ideas towards becoming a Christian, and eventually he became one of the most impactful Christian theologians. So yep. So then after that, because of this, uh, the other bishops asked Augustine to write a defense, and from this, Augustine wrote the City of God, which is a 22-volume book. He has two major themes in five sections. So let's talk about book one to five, very brief. So uh, in here, he just briefly talked about, uh, he just gave a rebuttal to the claims that Rome is sacked because they forego uh, pagan worship. So he also did, from this, he also talked about the doctrine of fate. Then he also talked about the problem of evil. And it was at the same time, he also wrote briefly about uh, the putting of death to Christian women who were violated by soldiers because apparently like the soldiers come in and rape everyone. And even people who died, they also raped. So it's like kind of messed up. So then he also wrote about the depravity of the pagan, like pagan religion that brought by the, to the Romans. So it's really interesting because it's talk, it started to talk about the addiction to entertainment. That kind of sounds familiar. <laughs> so in this, like, uh, so what really happened was he was saying, uh, like the Romans, they are so addicted to entertainment that even when Rome was sacked, the people flee to another city. Like the first thing they did was to go to the theater and enjoy themselves. So that wasn't probably uh, what most people actually do in a wartime or like people would be like scared but they are just oh I, I need to continue watching my series I need to continue watching my movies and also they had like t a lot of ungodly practices as Greg has mentioned with the theater and with the whole entertainment how the whole entertainment it's uh, like the things they are talking about the things they are portraying it's pretty ungodly it's just like just fulfillment of your like sinful nature and looking at people die with the games and it's pretty barbaric in a lot of sense so Augustine just really punched on this he's just uh, saying like what the pagan religions brought was really something like this or you're looking this what really came in is not really uh, something that you look forward towards then from book 6 to 10 uh, because of his background he was pretty familiar with the pagan theology so he discussed the pagan theology by Vario, which is the leading pagan theologian at the time. So uh, with Vario, he described uh, for that yeah, pagan theology, there's three aspects, the mythical, civil, and natural. So the first two was like Augustine just like, defeated it pretty easily. Then with the last one, he said like, uh, like the pagan theologian is not even like the points that they argue is not even good at all he said instead the platonists they actually had a better argument for the natural theology side so at this time the platonists was actually the leading philosophy so you can see this interesting pattern like augustine he first attacked the he always attacked the leads it's, you can see how i guess how brilliant he is in some ways 
Like he took his attack and his defense on the lead things. First on the lead pagan, then on after that on the lead philosophy. So he just decided he just uh, talked about the natural theology with Platonists. So he discussed how it is how similar it is to Christian faith. Then of course, but he also refutes the idea of Apuleius on demon worship. So you can kind of see this like a very subtle moving in and comparing of different philosophies and then bringing in the Christian philosophy as the supreme one. So you also discuss the existence of evil and works of angel and demons. So the first 10 books is really uh, about talking about like the pagan religion, like how depraved they are in certain sense and how it should not be attributed how the sect of Rome should not be attributed to Christians. Yep. So then it comes to the parts, the second part, which is book 11 to 22. So book 11 to 14, he just started with an exposition of Genesis 1. So with this, he begins his origins of the two cities, which is a separation of good and bad angels. Like this part, I'm not very, very clear on, but I thought it's pretty interesting. Because from here, from here you start to de develop the doctrines of angels and demons, which is very necessary. Then you also start to do develop doctrine of man and also the doctrine of sin. Then from book 15 to 18, like he began to discuss the origin of these two cities in terms of Cain and Abel. Then also moving forward from Noah to Abraham and progr the progress of the heavenly city this time before that was the two city earth uh, the earthly city and the heavenly city now it's just a heavenly city from abraham to the king of kings of israel then the history of the city of god from samuel to david and to christ so in his i think in his uh in his whole exposition it's a uh, very christocentric and i think it's really interesting because like what we are talking about Today we are also, it's also something that actually came from pretty ancient, it's already developed. So what we teach is actually not new in some sense. It's actually very it's an ancient faith. And if you I think if you read the book uh God's Big Picture, it's really talking about all this too. So like I say, like a very a lot of Christological interpretation in the Old Testament. And he also talked about the history of the two cities and how it ended up in the end. Then after he started to talk about book 19 to 22, which is mainly about eschatology. So he was saying the peace and happiness belong to the heavenly city and the people of Christ are both now and hereafter. So now you really start to wonder like where does other thoughts of eschatology come in besides post-millennialism? Then with the as you also talk about last judgment, the punishment of the city of the devil and eternal happiness and uh, explanation of the resurrection of the body. So in summary, I would say the whole city of God, you can see in the part one, it's really a critic of Roman religion, philosophy, and the corresponding to the earthly city, how they are like the earthly city. So book one to five, a critic of pagan religion. Book six to 10, a critic of the pagan philosophy. So in the, you can see the first part is really an attack. Then the second part of the book, once you finish, attacking the sin part, then you come into giving them a solution. So in the second part, it's a discussion of city of God, its relationship to the earthly city. So you start to talk about the two cities, then the history progress of these two cities, where you lead, end up in, and the final destin, destiny, 
nation of these two city of Final Destiny. So I'll say final thoughts are uh, like the city of God is it's like what I said in the beginning, it's really foundational to many Christian doctrines and it's really what it's also because of uh the brilliance of Augustine that all this was hammered down pretty early on. I would say at that point of time it's almost really like the the height of ancient faith. So we have like the systematic theology, the theology, the anthropology, Christology, eschatology, soteriology, and there's ecclesiology too. So like how all the topics he covered, everything. And you also talk about biblical theology. So also Augustine has almost 50 other works, which is pretty significant. That's why you can see why he's one of the most important fathers, the church fathers during that era. So I thought it's pretty interesting also that uh, as you see uh, in the beginning was the ancient faith. They started to hammer down it's really on the word. Then after that came in the, like after that uh, the Muslims came in and that was a period of time where uh, a lot of parts of Christianity was really being hit down. Then after that came uh, I guess the was that Roman Catholicism then after that you have the Reformation so this was about uh, 1,500 yeah 1,500 then after that you, you really had uh, after the Reformation you kind of had a period of modernism then now now we have we, we say we kind of come into the period of postmodernism. So I don't know, of course I find it interesting that as we look at the events that's happening nowadays, like some of the ISIS events, and some of, we also see like a gradual going back to the ancient faith. It's almost like a symmetry in some ways. It's like, uh, I don't know, at least that seems to me, you know, I thought that was interesting. Like we see from the Reformation on, it's kind of like a middle point, and everything starts to move backwards. So that was pretty interesting, but thank you for your time.